Are you studying for your board exams and looking for low-cost, high-quality practice questions? Well, look no further than the High Yield Family Medicine Patreon page. For just $5 a month, you'll gain instant access to over 100 board-style practice questions, each complete with detailed explanations and focusing on all the high-yield topics you need to know for test day. Don't miss out on this opportunity to elevate your studying and enhance your knowledge and skills in family medicine. Sign up now at patreon.com slash highyieldfamilymedicine. Link in the description. Hello, and welcome to Episode 6 of the High Yield Family Medicine Podcast. In the last few episodes, we did a deep dive on labor and delivery, discussing everything from the stages of labor, fetal heart tracings, and several of the more commonly seen pathologies that you may expect to see either on your rotations or on your exams. Today, we're going to continue on that path as we discuss all the high-yield things you need to know about when it comes to postpartum care and contraceptives. Quality postpartum care is essential for every woman who has recently given birth, including women who experienced miscarriages or stillborns. All women should have multiple visits with their provider within the first several weeks after delivery to manage chronic medical conditions such as diabetes or hypertension, assess social and psychological well-being, give anticipatory guidance about caring for a newborn, which we'll discuss in detail in a future episode, discuss birth spacing, and finally, work together to determine if contraception should be used, and if so, which type. Contraceptives are a big topic, so we'll spend a lot of time going over the variety of options in this episode, because they tend to be highly testable. So without further ado, let's begin our discussion on postpartum care and contraceptives. Although the several weeks following birth may be filled with joy and excitement for many, this so-called fourth trimester can be extremely challenging for new mothers and other family members alike. Lack of sleep, hormonal changes, difficulty with breastfeeding, physical pain, and not to mention all the psychological and social changes that can come together and make life really difficult during this time. Therefore, postpartum office visits should always include a discussion on emotional health, and to screen for postpartum depression using a standardized screening tool. A few definitions to be aware of. Baby blues is the name given to a brief period following childbirth with symptoms that resemble postpartum depression, including mood swings, anxiety, sadness, crying, irritability, trouble sleeping, trouble eating, etc. Postpartum depression, on the other hand, is more severe than baby blues and tends to last longer up to several months. Some features of postpartum depression are being withdrawn from family and friends, lack of interest in things they used to enjoy, difficulty bonding with the baby, feelings of hopelessness, and or thoughts of harming themselves or the baby. Postpartum depression should be treated with antidepressants like SSRIs, and if there is concern that either the mother or the baby is in danger, then they should be separated and a psychiatric evaluation should be given. And now, a quick question for you. Is it safe to breastfeed while taking SSRIs? The answer is yes. It is generally safe to take SSRIs while breastfeeding, especially ones like sertraline or paroxetine. 
So in summary, baby blues are less severe and last a couple weeks, while postpartum depression is more severe and can last several months if left untreated. There is also postpartum psychosis, which is much more rare than baby blues or postpartum depression, yet remains a highly testable topic, so let's briefly discuss it here. Postpartum psychosis is when symptoms of psychosis manifest after giving birth, and it will look very much like the symptoms of schizophrenia except for the time frame. Often, test questions will describe a woman who, shortly after giving birth, begins to experience bizarre delusions or hallucinations, such as believing her newborn baby is possessed by the devil or communicating with aliens or something along those lines. The next step here is to separate the mother from the baby for safety reasons and have the mother psychiatrically evaluated with treatment usually consisting of antipsychotic and or anxiolytic medications. In terms of general health maintenance, it's important to follow up with any chronic conditions the patient may have, including diabetes or hypertension. If the mom had gestational diabetes during her pregnancy, it's important at some point to repeat a glucose tolerance test, which if you'll remember from our episode on prenatal care, is the test where they measure blood glucose levels two hours after consuming a 75 gram glucose solution. For hypertension, it's generally recommended to continue avoiding ACEs or ARBs for at least the first few weeks after delivery. And of course, many women will be taking medications for all sorts of other reasons, so it's important to confirm that they are safe to take while breastfeeding by using a resource like Lactmed or some other reputable database. Obviously, I won't even try to list them all here, but some high-yield medications to avoid while breastfeeding are things like aspirin for risk of Reye syndrome, opioids, antiarrhythmic drugs like amiodarone because of interfering with the infant's thyroid, certain antidepressants and antipsychotics, epilepsy or anti-seizure drugs, chemotherapy agents, and oral contraceptives. In addition, HIV-positive mothers should not breastfeed their babies. Now let's shift our discussion towards contraceptives and birth spacing. Firstly, it's important to gauge whether or not the new mom is interested in having another baby at all. If they are, they should be advised to avoid becoming pregnant for at least six months, and perhaps even up to 18 months in some cases. This is because there are health risks in becoming pregnant again so soon, and it is advisable to get the body back to proper health before trying again. Breastfeeding actually serves a dual purpose in that elevated levels of prolactin feed back on the hypothalamus to negatively inhibit the release of gonadotropin-releasing hormone, thereby disrupting the hypothalamus-pituitary-ovarian axis, also known as the HPO axis. This method of contraception is dependent on the frequency and intensity of lactation. Therefore, if other supplemental nutrition sources like formula are used at least 10% of the time, then the efficacy rate of this breastfeeding method of birth control will wane. If they're not interested in becoming pregnant again, or if they wish to delay future pregnancies for the time being, then now is the time to discuss contraception options. The history of contraception use is fascinating in its own right, but for now, let's just go over the stuff I feel is most relevant and break down each of the modes of contraception, as well as some pros and cons for each. 
The first one we'll discuss is the only medication I could think of, which is known world over as simply the pill. The most common formulation of the pill is a combined estrogen-progestin capsule that functions by interrupting the normal menstruation cycle, thus inhibiting ovulation. And between the estrogen analog or the progestin, do you know which component of the pill is actually responsible for inhibiting ovulation? That's right, the answer is progestin. Progestin is the name we give to a group of compounds that resembles progesterone and the way progestin functions in oral contraceptives is by a negative feedback system in the hypothalamus which suppresses the release of gonadotropin-releasing hormone, or GRH. By suppressing GRH, you are also lowering the amount of luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone that is secreted by the pituitary. And another question for you, which hormone, is it FSH or LH, which is released in a big pulse on day 14 of the menstrual cycle, which triggers ovulation. That's right, it's LH. So in summary, progestin acts on the hypothalamus and a negative feedback system to suppress the release of GRH, and without GRH, you don't get the LH spike from the pituitary to act on the ovary and trigger the release of an egg. As we hinted before, this system known as the HPO axis is the main target of progestins in order to prevent pregnancy. In addition, progestin also acts directly on the endometrium to make it less hospitable for incoming sperm to come in. So if progestin is doing all of these amazing things by itself, then why do we add estrogen to oral contraceptives? Well, it's because estrogen acts in this case by regulating bleeding. This will make sense if you think back to that wonderful chart we all saw in our first year physiology class demonstrating the menstrual cycle and how various hormones affect the endometrium. If you'll remember at the end of the cycle, levels of estradiol and progesterone drop, followed shortly by menses. Combined OCPs mimic this cycle by giving 21 days of active pills followed by 7 days of placebo pills, whereas progestin-only pills don't have a placebo week and consequently have a higher rate of irregular bleeding. Estrogens do carry risk, however, as estrogen-containing OCPs should not be given to women who are smokers over 35 or have a personal history of or genetic predisposition to blood clots. There are also combined estrogen-progestin skin patches which have similar efficacy rates and risk profiles as compared to the pill. Hormonal contraception is also available in many other delivery methods. A progestin called Depo-Medroxyprogesterone, also known as DMPA or simply Depo, can be injected either intramuscularly or subcutaneously and have similar efficacy rates as OCPs. Since it is progestin only, it does have irregular bleeding associated with it, but the symptoms usually tend to improve over time. A benefit to DMPA injections is that it only needs to be administered once every few months, making compliance much easier. The only downside to DMPA is that it's the only temporary form of contraception that takes a long time to get out of the system if the patient wishes to become pregnant again, likely because the compound stays embedded in the fat for a long time, thereby suppressing the HPO axis for an extended period. Next, let's discuss IUDs. IUDs, or intrauterine devices, 
are devices that a doctor can insert through the cervix to be kept for years within a woman's uterus to prevent pregnancy. There are two main types of IUDs, hormonal and copper. Hormonal IUDs use a progestin called levonogestrel and act similarly to other hormonal options in that they disrupt the HPO axis with the added benefit that they could remain in the woman for up to five or more years. Copper IUDs leave the HPO axis intact, allowing menstruation to occur as it naturally does. Copper IUDs act locally as a spermicide and irritate the endometrium, preventing implantation from taking place. One major drawback to copper IUDs is that they tend to cause lots of bleeding, so they should be avoided in women who are already heavy bleeders. And importantly, IUDs cannot be used in women who have any anatomical uterine abnormalities, as the IUD may become malpositioned, leading to pain, bleeding, or ineffective contraception. And the last thing to be aware of for IUDs is that ectopic pregnancies are about three to four times more likely to occur in women with IUDs versus women without IUDs. This is thought to be because of bacteria that is introduced into the uterus during IUD placement, which can then go on to seed the fallopian tubes and cause inflammation and fibrosis, disrupting the usual rhythmic movements of the fallopian tubes, resulting in ectopic pregnancy. Test question writers will try to trick you and present a case that walks, talks, and acts like an ectopic pregnancy but they'll throw in the presence of an IUD as a way to try and sway you from any sort of pregnancy-related complication that may be going on. Don't be fooled here, and always rule out ectopic pregnancies with a urine beta-HCG test and an ultrasound. On the topic of long-acting reversible contraception, there is also a very small implantable rod that can be placed subdermally in the arm and will slowly release the progestin etanogestrol into the body for up to four years. This method of birth control seems to be the single most effective method in reversibly preventing pregnancy and has very few contraindications. Similar to other progestins, etanogastrol will inhibit ovulation via negative feedback on the hypothalamus while also acting locally on the uterus to induce thick cervical mucus secretions, making the environment inhospitable for incoming sperm. And like other progestin methods, bleeding can become irregular after starting its use. The same progestin in implants, etanogestrol, can also be found in combination with estrogen as a vaginal ring product, which can be inserted in the vagina in order to prevent pregnancy. The combined estrogen-etanogestrol-vaginal ring functions similarly to other combined hormonal options and should be kept inserted for 21 days then removed for seven days as a way to mimic the placebo week in OCPs. And similar to other combined hormonal options, the risk of blood clots and insertable rings tends to be comparable to that of other estrogen-containing options. Next up, condoms and diaphragms are straightforward physical barriers often imbued with topical spermicidal agents or pH modulators that can kill or weaken sperm motility. The added benefit of condoms is that they can also protect against STIs and HIV. However, diaphragms and every other method of contraception we've discussed do not. Fertility awareness methods, such as basal temperature monitoring or the pull-out method, are other ways of avoiding pregnancy, but the risks here are inherently user-dependent.
When all else fails, let's discuss emergency contraception. The most effective emergency contraception is actually to insert a copper IUD within five days of unprotected intercourse. Alternatively, there are medications available either over-the-counter or by prescription which are effective in delaying or blocking ovulation. Levonogestrel, which is the same progestin used in hormonal IUDs, is available over-the-counter in a single 1.5 mg dose, or the anti-progestin ulipristal acetate, which is available by prescription in a single 30 mg dose. Both medications have similar efficacy rates within the first three days. However, ulipristal acetate seems to be effective all the way up to five days after intercourse. And lastly, before wrapping up, let's discuss a few quick non-contraceptive reasons why we may want to prescribe hormonal birth control. As we already discussed, the estrogen component of combined OCPs is effective in regulating bleeding, such as in cases of polycystic ovarian syndrome, or PCOS. In fact, regulating menstruation was the reason why birth control pills became FDA-approved in the first place back in the 1950s, back when it was still too taboo to approve medications for the sole purpose of preventing pregnancy. In addition, estrogen is very effective at increasing levels of hepatic sex hormone binding globulin, which reduces free testosterone in the blood thereby alleviating androgen-sensitive conditions such as hirsutism and acne. And that about wraps it up. Let's see how we're doing now with a few practice questions. Question 1. A 32-year-old woman is in your office two months after giving birth to a healthy baby boy. She reports that her son is doing well, However, she expresses difficulty in handling all the new life changes and often finds herself crying and feeling hopeless. She feels exhausted most days and has a poor appetite. She was previously an avid gardener, but has now stopped gardening entirely. When asked about family and friends, she says that she no longer enjoys seeing anyone who comes to visit. She denies any hallucinations or delusions and denies ever having thoughts of harming herself or the baby. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? A. Recommend a trial of sertraline to treat her postpartum depression. B. Involuntarily admit her to the hospital for psychiatric evaluation. C. Send lab work for thyroid testing. Or D. Reassure her that her symptoms are typical baby blues and will soon resolve on their own. Answer A. Recommend a trial of sertraline to treat her postpartum depression. This patient is experiencing several of the classical symptoms of depression, including hopelessness, fatigue, sleep and appetite disturbances, and anhedonia. Given that she has recently given birth, postpartum depression is the most likely diagnosis versus baby blues, which tends to be less severe and resolve on its own. Question 2. A 36-year-old woman with a BMI of 30 is in your office two weeks after giving birth to a healthy baby girl. She is a current smoker, but says that she did not smoke during her pregnancy and also reports a personal history of heavy bleeding during her menstrual cycle. She states that she would like to become pregnant again, but not for at least another two years. When discussing contraceptive options, which of the following conditions would be a contraindication for prescribing 
combined OCPs. A. Her BMI. B. Her age. C. Her smoking status. Or D. Her personal history of heavy bleeding. Answer. C. Her smoking status. Although high BMI may lower the efficacy of OCPs, it is not a contraindication to initiating OCP therapy. Heavy menstrual bleeding would not be worsened by OCPs, and in fact the estrogen analog in the pill would actually help to regulate her bleeding. One of the biggest risks of combined OCP therapy is blood clots. Therefore, combined OCPs are contraindicated in women over 35 who are smokers, as well as any other predisposing factors such as a personal prior history of blood clots. Question 3. A 32-year-old woman comes to your office because she would like to become pregnant. She received her last dose of depot medroxyprogesterone, or DMPA, about three months ago. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step? A. Explain to the patient that becoming pregnant may be difficult for the next several months due to the long-acting effects of DMPA. B. Recommend one dose of the antiprogestone medication ulipristal acetate to reverse the contraceptive effect of DMPA. C. Recommend against becoming pregnant for at least one year since the last DMPA injection due to its teratogenic effect. D. Order a pelvic ultrasound before recommending that she try to become pregnant. Answer A. Explain to the patient that becoming pregnant may be difficult for the next several months due to the long-acting effects of DMPA. DMPA is an injectable progestin that can exert its contraceptive effect for months due to its ability to store within the fatty tissues of the body, and it is not a known teratogen. Ulipristal acetate is an antiprogestin that has use in emergency contraception and is not indicated in this scenario, and pelvic ultrasounds are not typically part of preconception planning. Question 4. A 25-year-old woman with a BMI of 35 presents to your office with a six-month history of acne, excessive hair growth, and irregular vaginal bleeding. You order a pelvic ultrasound and discover that she has multiple large ovarian follicles bilaterally, as well as a bicornuate uterus. As you discuss treatment options with her, she agrees to try birth control in order to regulate her cycles but she asks if there's anything she could take other than pills. Which of the following is the most appropriate option? A. Depot medroxyprogesterone, or DMPA. B. Levonogestrel IUD. C. Copper IUD. Or D. Estrogen-containing hormonal skin patch. Answer. D. Estrogen-containing hormonal skin patch. This overweight woman with acne, excessive hair growth, and irregular vaginal bleeding fits the classic description of PCOS. Treatment for PCOS typically includes combined OCPs, wherein the hormones stimulate normal uterine proliferation and eventual shedding, which would help to regulate this patient's cycle, as well as increased levels of hepatic sex hormone binding globulin, which would reduce free androgens in this patient. However, her unwillingness to take pills forces us to think of other viable options.
DMPA is not appropriate in this case as it tends to transiently worsen bleeding. Plus, it does not contain any estrogen analog, which would help in lowering androgen levels. Copper IUDs do not serve a purpose here either, as they tend to increase bleeding, not regulate it. And not even hormonal IUDs are appropriate in this case, due to the incidental finding of a structural uterine abnormality. Therefore, the only correct option here is an estrogen-containing hormonal skin patch.